Well, good morning and welcome to Sojourn. So glad to gather with you today on a cold, almost winter day. I hope you were able to enjoy a little snow outside over the weekend. And man, loved having choir up on the stage today. That's fun, right? Yeah, so thank you guys for serving us and the band for serving us this morning uh, and leading us in song as we worship our God and King. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good just to be with you. Open up God's Word together as we uh, jump into the book of Hebrews this morning. So if you need a copy of the Bible, if you just raise your hand and uh, someone will bring a Bible around to you so that you can read along with us out of Hebrews this morning. If you don't own a copy of the Scriptures, please feel free to take that with you. It's our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word, uh, not just today, but all throughout the week as well. And if you are new here this morning, we're just glad that you're here. For whatever reason, God brought you to be here, whether you were invited by a friend or you're looking for a new church community, maybe you're new to the area, uh, or just investigating what a relationship with Jesus looks like. No matter where you find yourself, just grateful that you're here. We're going to tell you more at the end of the service about how you can get plugged in and involved and connected here at Sojourn. Before we jump into the book of Hebrews, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer and, uh, and ask him to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and we acknowledge the reality, the fact that you are God, that you are in the heavens and you do all that you please. Lord, what an amazing truth that you, the God who does all that he pleases, who's high and lifted up, allows us to know you and to be known by you, to have a relationship with you, to be brought into your family, not because of anything that we've figured out on our own, not because we're wise in ourselves, not because we are righteous and right on our own, because you sent your son to us to bring us into relationship with you, to take on our sin and our shame and to give us his perfect life, his perfect righteousness. God, this morning we acknowledge the fact that you have lavished grace on us. You have poured out your love on us. And so I pray that you'd help us to rest in that truth, that you'd help us to rest in that reality. And so, Father, this morning we look to you for help. We look to you for mercy. I pray that as we open up your word to the book of Hebrews once again, that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. That as your word goes out this morning, that you would cultivate within us a heart of worship. That you'd cultivate within us a, a heart of faith an absurd faith to be and do all that you've called us to. Lord, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you make yourself great this morning? That we might live in the reality of the fact that we know you and behold your glory and reflect that to the world around us. Lord, nourish our minds and our hearts and our souls this morning to be who you've called us to be as a church family a family that lives by faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you played sports when you were growing up, maybe as a kid, or you at least knew or know some kids that play sports. At least one time in every young person's sport career, there's the hope, the dream, the desire that they're going to make it big. Right? They're going to go pro in whatever sport it is they're pray, playing. If you ask my oldest right now uh, what he'd like to do when he grows up, my guess is that he'd say, play baseball, right? He's sitting here this morning. He'd want to play baseball. He wants to be a professional baseball player. But statistically speaking, those dreams for most people are just that. 
dreams. Even if you're able to make it onto your high school team in whatever sport you play, and in this area, in a very densely populated area, that's not a given for you to be able to even make your high school team. The chances of making it to a college team are only about 2%. Only about 2%. Then, on top of that, the percentage of college athletes that go pro in their sport is also very rare. Only about 2% or even a little bit less than 2% of college athletes go pro in their sport except baseball. Now, what does that mean? It means that most high school athletes, most college athletes will never really be known by anyone outside of their immediate family, friends, and their local community. Now, most of the time that's okay because most high school athletes, most college athletes, even younger kids, while they have big aspirations and dreams, just play for love of the game. They're not playing for a paycheck or endorsements for the most part. Well, today we're going to finish up our short mini-sermon series on faith. We're going to close out Hebrews chapter 11. And last week, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 11, through the examples of faith that the author gave to us, what we were challenged to see and what we were challenged to have is a seemingly absurd faith. A, a I need you to show up God kind of faith. And I'd encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that, that you'd go online and listen to it or download our app and listen to that sermon. It's, it's an important shaping sermon for our church as we look ahead for what God's calling us to. But as we look at these last few verses in this faith manifesto, how the author concludes this, this writing, this teaching on faith is begging for us to ask a few questions of ourselves. These are the questions. Are you okay with living with this kind of radical faith, with striving to be faithful and being content, whether you have a lot or a little, whether there's notoriety or anonymity to your life? Are you okay with living this kind of radical faith, with striving to be faithful, but being unknown, being forgotten, like most high school and college athletes? Are you okay with living this kind of radical faith, with striving to be faithful, but suffering all along the way? As we dive into the text this morning, it's going to press into deep places in our heart. Our heart is where the, the motivational structures of our life reside. It's, it's the why we do what it is that we do. But my hope is, as we dive into this, is that God will use his word to compel us as his people, not to shrink back, not to shrink back as individuals, not to shrink back as a church, but to be emboldened all the more, all the more to live humble lives, to live faithful lives, to live obedient lives, to live worshipful lives, but to do so with a triumphant faith. A triumphant faith, whether our culture or our world is handing out accolades or acrimony for following Jesus. And that we will be committed to do that until Jesus returns or calls us home. So go ahead, if you haven't already, and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's finish our time in this timeless call to genuine faith. We're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32, through the end of the chapter, through verse 40. This is what the author writes. And this is God's word to us this morning. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. 
who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. After all that the author has written about faith, all that he's talked about, all these men and women of faith that have marked the history of God's people, it's like he comes to verse 32 and is like, man, I could talk about this forever. Like, I could go on forever just telling story after story of how I see God's people walking by faith, living by faith, this incredible, absurd kind of faith. I could just tell stories forever, but time won't allow me to do that. Over and over again, he's mentioned these instances of true, genuine faith, faith that leads to action, action that's rooted in believing God, not just believing in God, but believing him, taking him at his word and Arranging our lives according to that. Because of who he is, walking in obedience to what he's called us to. And so he gives all these examples of faith, and again, it's like he could go on forever talking about it. But instead, he seeks to wrap up, and so he rattles off some names, some more well-known than others. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. Now, whether you know who all of those people are, who some of those people are, or who none of those people are, There's something important for us that we need to pay attention to, something immediately important for us to realize and rest in, and it's this. None of those people are perfect. None of those people are perfect. In fact, some of them did some pretty awful things in their lives. Gideon was a coward. He was fearful. He tested God more than once. Samson was a womanizer. David committed adultery and murder. Yet, here they are, in Hebrews chapter 11, here they are, upheld as examples of faith to us. So what's going on with this? See, what we have to see in this, the encouragement to us is, yes, all of these people were not a perfect people. And oftentimes, not only were they not perfect, they didn't have a perfect faith. They struggled to believe God. They struggled to walk in obedience in every aspect of their life. But they had faith in a perfect God. They had faith in a perfect God who is completely and consistently faithful. John Calvin, the famous reformer, said this, Although faith may be imperfect and incomplete, it does not cease to be approved by God. Why? Because their faith is in him. It's in him. So take heart this morning. If you have weak faith, Take heart. If you struggle with sin, as all of us do, take heart and set your gaze on the only person, the only object, object of faith worth putting your hope in. Because it's not by your good behavior. 
It's not by your good actions. It's not by your perfect record that you're saved. If that were the case, then none of us would need to be saved. But the reality is, all of us need God's redemption. All of us need God's salvation. But it comes not by our perfect righteousness because we don't have any. It comes by grace through faith in Jesus. His perfect life. His sacrificial death. His glorious resurrection that you are saved. And then out of that faith, it's out of that faith that you're able to walk in the ways, in the will of God, to do the good works he's prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So what exactly do these people listed and others, what do they in and through and by their faith, what do they accomplish? Well, some pretty amazing things. He lists off 10 things that are accomplished by their absurd faith in the God of the impossible. He says they conquer kingdoms, they enforce justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions. That's crazy. They quenched the power of fire. That's insane. They escaped the edge of the sword. They're made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Their loved ones who had passed away were raised again to new life, to breathe again, to live. All of these things are huge things, obviously some more than others. But all of them came about by and through faith. Not a single person who saw any of these things come to fruition. Not a single person who did any of these things was able to do them on their own strength, on their own ability. It was by God, through him, and their belief in him, believing that God was with them and would go before them. So once again, as we're reminded at the beginning of this series, as we've walked all throughout Hebrews 11, faith then isn't just giving a head nod to God. Like, okay, sure, God, I believe you, but now I've got to get to work over here. No, it's a continual dependence on him. It's a believing him. It's a trusting in him, leaning into him. And in this, we see that sometimes absurd faith is a faith that leads to victory. And sometimes those noble victories lead to notoriety. I mean, we could look through this list, and we, we know about David. We know about Gideon and Elijah and Elisha. We know about Daniel shutting the mouths of lions. We know the story, perhaps, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown into the midst of a fiery furnace that was heated up multiple times, yet survived that, because God rescued them in that because of their faith. So sometimes it leads to victory. Sometimes it leads to notoriety. But that's not always the case. You see, in these next few verses, the author takes a pretty sharp turn, kind of mid-sentence almost. It seems like he's going along telling all these great stories of victory, but then he takes this sharp turn away from absurd faith that leads to victory and turns to absurd faith that endures suffering. Similar to the list of feats mentioned in verses 33 through 35, he lists off things that happened to other faithful men and women of God. He says some were tortured, refusing to accept release. Why? Because they were looking forward to a better resurrection. Not one in which they would just come back to life in that moment, but one that would last for all eternity. Some suffered mocking. They suffered flogging. They were beaten with whips and chains ripping into their flesh. Some suffered chains and imprisonment. Others were stoned to death. Some were sawn in two. Some were killed by the sword. 
They had no clothes or possessions. They were destitute. They were afflicted. They were mistreated. They didn't have homes, no place to call their own, no place to go to a place of refuge to to be safe and warm and okay. They wandered in the wilderness among deserts, mountains, caves, and dens. I mean, this is a sobering list marked by insane suffering. So why did they do this? Why did they go through suffering like this? Was it because they were disobedient to God? This was punishment for their disobedience? This was punishment for their lack of faith? That they endured these things, walked through these things? No, quite the opposite. It was because of their faith. Their faith in God, faith that he and his ways are always better. They endured suffering like this because of their assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. See, the list of these people, this isn't a picture of defeated faith. It's not a picture of a faith that's set aside. Every man and woman whose sufferings are chronicled here had a triumphant faith. And that's the kind of faith we should go and tell the world about. That as we think about sharing the good news to the world around us, that we would go and say, man, let me tell you about people who had a triumphant faith and the God who they had faith in. Rooted in the resurrected power of a resurrected king. But that's not always what happens with God's people. Last year, the United States shipped $1.45 trillion worth of goods around the globe. $1.45 trillion worth of goods. The top five exports for the United States were machinery, including computers, electrical machinery and equipment, aircraft, vehicles, and mineral fuels, including oil. Now, a lot of exports that we send are good. They serve people all around the world. Some not so good. I'm sure the world could use a little less plastic, which we tend to produce a lot of. But the most damaging, unquantifiable export from America isn't a tangible good. It's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. It's what's come to be known as the prosperity gospel. The belief that, that the good news that the scriptures tell about, that God wants us to go and tell others about, that what that good news is, is that God wants you to be happy, and he wants you to be healthy, and he wants you to be wealthy. Now, those things in and of themselves, being happy, having your health, having financial prosperity, in and of themselves, those things aren't bad, but they aren't the goal of the gospel, But oftentimes that gets talked about and that gets communicated and it comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes it's overt and it's clear to us. We can see, man, this doesn't seem to line up with Scripture, but sometimes it's very subtle. Maybe there's a lot of talk about Jesus and what he's done for us, but the goal of what Jesus has done for us gets linked to those things. And Jesus died so that you could be happy. Jesus died so that you could be healthy. And Jesus died so that you could be wealthy. And it's plagued not only our own country, but whole continents, Africa, Asia. It's been exported and primarily started from and in the United States, and it's been sent around the world, and it is completely false. Completely false. See, gospel means good news. And here's what the good news is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And it's this gospel, this good news that is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he's, he's calling them to generosity, to radical generosity. And he says this to him in chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now we can look at that verse and rip it out of context and see, say, look, he, he wants you to become rich. But it's not material wealth he's talking about. It's not so that you can get hooked up with more things. It's not so that you can live a comfortable, easy life. He's talking about being spiritually rich. Spiritually rich in Christ. Because the reality is, apart from Jesus, we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. Apart from Jesus, we are all enemies of God, separated from Him. Apart from Jesus, you have nothing and you are nothing. But Jesus came. So we celebrate at Christmas. Man, may that never get lost on us that we get to spend this time celebrating the fact that Jesus came. But he didn't come to make you happy. He didn't come to make you healthy. He didn't come to make you wealthy. He came to bring new life. He came to bring new life where there was only death. He came to bring light where there was only darkness. Through Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. And in Christ, everything that is his is now yours, Romans 8 says. Verse 17, provided that you suffer with him. That you suffer with him. So what that means then is that when we look at Scripture, when we look at these last few verses in Hebrews chapter 11, we have to say definitively so much for the prosperity gospel. Because these were men and women who had a rock-solid faith in the promises and purposes of God. Men and women who were commended for their faith. Men and women whose hope was not in this life, was not in this broken-down world, but in the world to come. Yet, they were men and women who suffered greatly. As one pastor said, faith in God carries with it no guarantee of comfort in this world, but it does carry with it great reward in the only world that ultimately matters. And because of that reality, they were not ashamed of the gospel. Because of that, they didn't turn and run away from suffering, but endured it triumphantly, longing for the day when full and final restoration of all things would come. That's why the author says what he does in verses 39 and 40. He says, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be, be made perfect. What's he talking about there? He's saying, look, all of these people in Hebrews 11, all of them, not just these, next, these, these uh, immediately preceding verses, but all of Hebrews 11, they saw God do amazing things. Some of them saw him do amazing things. Others suffered greatly along the way, but all of them held fast. They held fast to the promises of God. All of them were eagerly looking forward to, longing for a greater future hope longing for the restoration of all things and the rescue of a Savior. But all of them only saw preliminary glimpses of what was specifically promised. Why? It says because God had provided something better for us than apart from us, including this Hebrew audience he's writing to, and us today, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. What does that mean? It means that Jesus had to come. 
That that was the ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of God. And so all of these saints that we see in Hebrews 11, they looked forward with hope to his coming. They longed for Christmas Day, for Jesus to be born. They could sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that we sang this morning, or come, thou long-expected Jesus. They longed for the Savior to come. They longed for rescue to come. They longed for redemption to come. And now we get to look back and celebrate that and rejoice that he has come and look forward once again to his coming again to bring the fullness of redemption. So that means all of us together, every person who's had this faith in God, long for the day when the full and final redemption would come and when we all, because of triumphant faith in him, no matter what our sufferings have been in this life, we will see him and we will be made like him. Sinless, perfect, glorified. See, all of this, this better plan of God and his providence and his timing and his sovereignty, all of it embraces the better hope, the better promises, the better covenant, the better sacrifice, the better possession, the better resurrection, which is theirs and ours by faith because Jesus is better. So the whole book of Hebrews is about so the author's saying, look, this is it. They endured all of that because they really believe that to be true. Do you? Do you believe it? And so by faith, some lived. And by faith, others died. But by faith, they all had hope in God who is, in God who is able, in God who is faithful. And so no matter what came their way, they were able to hold fast, not out of willpower, not out of personal strength, but because of who their faith was in and their hope that one day he will make all things new. Listen, maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God. Maybe you don't believe in God or you haven't trusted yet in Christ's sacrifice for your sin. Maybe some of you here this morning have an intellectual assent to God, kind of mentally you know about him and you kind of have that intellectual belief in him, but you don't have a genuine faith in him. Your whole life isn't staked on him and Christ and what he's done for you. Maybe some of you this morning have believed a false gospel. Man, that you put your faith in Jesus and what you were either told or what you've believed is that everything should be easier for you now. And you're questioning your faith because things aren't easy for you. But what we see in Hebrews 11 is a picture of what real faith is. Not the junk of the prosperity gospel. Not the junk of the so-called moral majority that is willing to sacrifice and compromise true faith and faithfulness in order to gain in this life power, prestige, and comfort. Not the junk of watered-down Christianity that says that life with Jesus means a life of ease. No, what we see is a picture of faith in future grace, a faith in a resurrected king, a king who himself suffered, even to the point of death and death on a cross, bearing the weight of eternal wrath of God that was meant for us and our sin. He took it all on himself so that, so that what would await us after this temporal world has passed away is not eternal suffering, but eternal glory. As one pastor said, for the person of faith, this kind of faith, the future is no longer insecure. 
That means that every person in this room, every person in the world, if they trust in Christ, we know what is to come. So you can come to him to know for sure what your future would be like, that you get to be with God forever. No more sin, no more suffering, no more death. But here's one of the most striking things about all of this. While we may be able to connect these instances to specific people in history, most are unknown and go unnamed. But what does it say about them in verse 38? Look at verse 38. What does it say? Of whom the world was not worthy of. Man, we look through all of this and it says the world wasn't worthy of them. It didn't deserve to have them live here, to be around them, because their faith was so extravagant, so beautiful, so otherworldly, so magnificent, precisely because they held fast in the midst of their suffering. Because they endured in and through and while they were suffering. See, true faith doesn't keep you from suffering in this world. True faith in our living God enables you to endure it in this life because you have a better greater, lasting hope. It's a triumphant faith in a triumphant Savior who says to you, in this world you will have trouble, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is the kind of faith that I want to have in my own life. This is the kind of faith I want you to have. That I want our church to have a triumphant faith and a triumphant Savior. Now, it might be helpful at this point to remember who the author is writing to. This struggling church. This struggling church who many of the the people in this struggling church have recently come to faith in Christ. And they're experiencing trial because of that. They're experiencing suffering and persecution because of that. And the temptation for them is to walk away from Jesus or to kind of set their faith in Jesus on the shelf because it'd be easier for them in this life. And so the author has been seeking to write to them, to remind them throughout this letter that Jesus is better. But what he's doing here is also reminding them that they're not alone in this. So this is not some inspirational aside to put on like a a Christian coffee cup or t-shirt. Like, hey, cool, have faith. Let's move along. No, this is a essential life and death teaching for these people. Men, things are going to get hard for you. They're going to be hard for you. You might suffer some of the same things that brothers and sisters before you have suffered, but hold on, hold fast, because Jesus is better. It was essential life and death teaching for them, and it is for us too. Because the reality is, we find ourselves in a world that's growing increasingly hostile towards true faith in Christ. When we stand with Jesus... Instead of a political ideology, we get ridiculed and slandered from both sides, even within the church. When we stand with Jesus and preach the full and whole gospel to the whole person, that Jesus is the only means of salvation, we experience ridicule and slander for that. But this kind of marginalization of the true church is happening more and more in the West. But the reality is many of our brothers and sisters know the realities of the end of Hebrews 11 all too well. That every moment of every day, that might be them. See, the history of Jesus' church is a history of suffering. 
then I think for most of us, because of when we've grown up and where we've grown up, don't understand that. We don't even understand, can't even grasp what it means to suffer for Christ in this way. But men and women who had absurd faith, they suffered greatly. They had absurd faith, and most of the world will never know them. And I think that right there is what presses on us. It presses on us in our Western mindset, this insatiable desire that subtly or sometimes not so subtly, it it brews within our hearts, it bellows within the depths of our hearts. We want to be significant. We want to do significant things. We want to be known. We want to be acknowledged. We want to be great. And a lot of us have grown up and people have told us that. Man, you're going to do great things. You should go change the world. You can change the world. Be a significant person. We're just, we've been told that's been preached to us for so long. But as one pastor says, our goal of greatness isn't the problem. It's how we define the word great. What we learn from this section of Hebrews 11 is this. Some of you may be known because of your faith, but most of you won't. You'll strive to be faithful. Most of you will be forgotten. So the question for you and for me is, are you okay with being one of those people? Are you okay with being one of those people? Because the culture of the world around us and the culture that is, I think, bled into the American church in a significant way tells you that you, what you do for God must be big and notable and done quickly. Man, that's, if, you're, if you're serious, you better do big things, everybody better know about it, and you need to do it as fast as possible. But the way we see God most often work in and through his people is in small, mostly overlooked, and usually over a long period of time things. Small, mostly overlooked, over a long period of time types of things. Things, though, that actually matter. Things that are eternally significant. God calls you to love him and love others more than yourself. That's what faithfulness looks like. God calls you to make disciples of your neighbors and the nations. He calls you to maintain the unity that Christ has purchased for us in this community with one another. Meaning that we're called to bear with one another, forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. He calls you and me to live humble, obedient, worshipful lives. He calls you to follow him and to trust him no matter what happens in your life. That's it. And most people will not give you accolades for that. Most people are not going to pat you on the back for that. But man, that's the upside down, inverted nature of the kingdom of God. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Whoever would seek to hold on to his life in this life will lose it. But whoever is willing to lay down his life for the sake of Jesus will gain it. What will it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There was a pastor in the 18th century in the Moravian church, a man named Count von Zinzendorf. I know, it's a funny name. He once said this was his goal in life. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now there's some irony to that because we actually know who he is, right? 
But that was what his aim was in life. I want to preach the gospel. I want to die and be forgotten. And man, I want that to be my goal in my life. I've written emails to people before and I've transitioned to different ministry things. Man, this is me, man. I want to preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But if I'm honest, I wrestle with wanting to do great things for God that make me known. Sure, God, I want you to be known. But if I could just be like right there underneath, that'd be sweet. I want to do great things for you, God, but I hope people like me. I hope they love me. Man, I'd much rather shut the mouths of lions than be sawn in two. But what if being full of faith, this kind of faith, with eyes fixed on Jesus, eyes fixed on eternity, means preach the gospel and because of that, die and be forgotten. And that's the reality of so many of our brothers and sisters throughout history. But am I okay with that for my life? And the reality is, again, I'm often not, and I need to continually repent of that. Where I'm seeking to kind of ride in the coattails of God that I would be mentioned right below him. But genuinely, what I pray that God would do in my life and in this church is that anyone that comes and gathers with this church would not walk out of here on any given Sunday and say, man, what a cool church. What a great sermon. What an awesome time of worship. But they would walk out and be like, man, what a great God. What a great God. What about you? Not all of us will be winners in this life. I know you grew up getting participation trophies. Paperweights, trash, junk. Man, that taught you something, right? You're going to be a winner. You're always a winner. You're not always going to be a winner in this life. And from the world's point of view, some of you are going to be huge losers because you sought to walk in obedience to Jesus. But a church that lives with certitude in God, a church that lives with certainty in his word, can have a profound impact and an effect on an antagonistic culture as we suffer well as we suffer well with a fixed hope on a glorious future. See, and having an an I need you to show up kind of faith is not mutually exclusive to the end of Hebrews chapter 11. Because it takes an I need you to show up kind of faith, God, to be able oftentimes to endure this kind of suffering and to continue to hold fast. Now, some of you are or will suffer not as a direct result of your faith, but because you live in a broken world and we all experience the effects of sin. And I think the truth of this text is good for you as well. It's for your joy as well. Because as one pastor says, it is a great relief to know that there is a higher explanation for your pain, for your pleasure, than whether you have enough faith. Wouldn't it be horrible to have to believe that on top of all of your suffering, you had to add this, it must be because of your lack of faith. Man, that's never the case. And we will never say to you in the midst of your suffering, for whatever reason that suffering might be, if you had faith, you would be okay. Instead, as a church who has a triumphant faith and a triumphant, once dead, now risen Savior, we will carry you to Jesus and remind you each and every day that you can trust in God. Because whether you live by faith or die by faith, God will take care of those who trust in him. God is faithful to his plans. He's faithful to his purposes. 
even if they're hidden from us. And having the triumphant faith we see in Hebrews 11 means we believe they are good because he is good. So again, this isn't contradictory to what we looked at last week. It isn't contradictory to having an I need you to show up kind of faith. Because in the midst of our suffering for whatever that happens to be, we may be praying with that kind of faith, God, I need you to show up to bring relief. I need you to show up to bring healing. And it's good to pray for that. We can also pray, God, I need you to show up to enable me to endure should you, in your good providence, decide not to. It's that kind of faith that when you have it all or lose it all, says God is better. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, God is a faithful deliverer, not by necessarily keeping you from suffering, but by being with you in it. And we all will encounter various trials, various struggles along the way as we seek to follow our resurrected king in a broken world. Our culture and our world will increasingly dislike you. It will increasingly disown you. It will become more and more unpopular to claim Christ. But don't forget, we already have the victory. 1 John 5, 4, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Our faith is what matters in the end because Jesus is all we need because Jesus really is all we have. So then, as John Calvin stated and asked in reference to this section of Hebrews 11, he says this, a tiny spark of light led them, talking about all of these people in Hebrews 11, it led them to heaven. They were hoping for that eternal city whose foundations would not go away. Then he says this, but now that the sun of righteousness shines on us, what excuse shall we offer if we still cling to this earth? The world is going to promise you ease. It's going to promise you comfort. And it's going to require from you the cost of setting aside your faith in Christ. Now, you don't have to let, totally let go of Jesus, but just kind of push him away a little bit to grab onto more comfort, more ease. And we're going to fail we're going to falter along the way. We're going to oftentimes care and focus on so much, so much more on the trivial things of life in light of eternity. But as martyred missionary Jim Elliott so succinctly stated, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's an absurd, I need you to show up kind of faith that cultivates in us and spreads among us a death-defying passion for God. That we can say to God, God, use everything. Take everything from me. I'm opening up my life. I'm opening up my hands. If you want me to give it all away, I'll do it because I trust you. I believe you. Even if it requires my life, I'll go and do whatever you call me to do because I believe you are better. It's that kind of faith that it gives us the ability to walk in his will no matter what the cost might be. To be able to say with the saints that have gone before us and the Apostle Paul, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I consider everything else trash compared to walking with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, God is not going to ask you whether or not you were famous. He's going to ask you if you were faithful. So what will your answer be? Man, I pray that we'd have a triumphant faith and a triumphant Savior 
whether we're known and remembered or unknown and forgotten, whether we shut the mouths of lions or are sawn in two. May we be a people of unshakable faith in God, believing him, taking him at his word, striving to live humble, obedient, worshipful lives because he is worthy. Sojourn, Jesus is better. He's better than anything this world promises to you and all that death can take from you. So may we believe that today and go and tell the world that for the rest of our lives. We're going to come forward now and take communion together. It's something we do every week as, a, as the first point of application from our sermon. In this meal we come forward to take, it's a holy and sacred meal that many unknown yet faithful men and women have eaten together for 2,000 years. Isn't that amazing? The brothers and sisters that you will never know until we get to eternity with Jesus. And the new heavens and the new earth have been partaking of this meal, this very simple yet transcendently profound meal. That as we eat the bread, it's a picture of Christ's body broken for us. As we drink the cup, it's a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. This meal is a declaration of our faith in a triumphant Savior. A Savior who flipped the physical and spiritual world on its head. And so as you come forward today, Come forward in a spirit of repentance. Repentance where, where you've sought fame or comfort over faithfulness. And also come forward with a spirit of reverence that you get to eat the bread and drink the cup, a reminder of the faithfulness of your Savior who came to us as one of us to rescue us. And then may it compel you to have a triumphant faith, a faith that says that we have an assurance in things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. And for those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion because this is that declaration that our faith, our hope, our only hope is in Jesus. And so if you don't yet know Christ, just hang out in your seat. But I'd invite you to be thinking about what's been preached on this morning, that you, if you're ready to start a relationship with God, to place your faith in Christ, that you would let God know that this morning. Maybe you don't know exactly what that looks like, looks like or means, but you would confess that to the Lord and then let somebody around you know that so that we can journey with you and help you understand what it means to know Christ and live with him. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back of the room, tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And then let's stand together and continue to worship our God and King. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come and we celebrate the fact that Christ has come to us. Lord, I love that at Christmas, that's what we get to celebrate, that Christ came. We celebrate as a church every week as we gather together a triumphant Savior. And as we come forward right now to partake of communion, to eat the bread and drink the cup, we do that once again. We declare his death until he comes again. And we know, we believe, we look forward to that day when we, along with all the saints, every saint listed here in Hebrews chapter 11, will rejoice because we'll be made fully like Jesus and experience your grace for all eternity. So Lord, I pray that you'd give us a triumphant faith now. I pray you'd give us an overcoming faith right now. I pray you'd give us an absurd faith right now. And that we as your people, no matter what comes our way, would learn contentment. Lord, we'd learn to be content with a lot or a little. Whether we're in a time and a season of comfort or suffering, because our hope is not in the things of this world, but in you. 
Lord, help us to have this kind of faith and to walk in it for your glory and for the good of others. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.